This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, host of Cross Defense. Thanks so much for being a podcast listener, downloading the podcast. I'm glad you have. I hope you enjoy this this week's episode. I talk with Pastor Brian Flammy about the seven theses of divine justice from Elihu. We talk about Job and the argument of suffering and how the Lord responds to it. You can find those theses at the website. If you go to wolfmuller.co, you can search for Job and find all the resources mentioned in today's show. And I hope if you like the show, you'll go and make a comment and stars on all those different podcast providers. That lets other people know that you enjoy the show, and maybe they'll enjoy it as well. So here you go. Here's this week's episode of Cross Defense. All right, welcome to Cross Defense. Hey, everybody out there. It's your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I just tried to put two pairs of glasses on. I barely need one. And you're listening to Cross Defense. This is where we're, we take up the topic, that we take up the task every week of igniting your theological imagination on fire with the Scriptures. That's what we're after. We're fighting against the devil's temptation towards theological boredom, and we do that by looking at various different curious theological topics. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been taking up some apologetics questions with my friend Pastor Brian Flammy of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. We're going to continue that theme today and, in fact, pick up on something that we that we finished. We kind of were cramming some stuff into the end of the show last week. I said to Pastor Fleming, this is so good. Let's just let's take our time and, and work our way through it. We're going to be considering mostly today... Elihu's Seven Theses on Divine Justice, something Pastor Flammy has written, pulled out of the speeches of Elihu, or Elihu, the the fourth friend of Job, St. Job, at the end of his suffering. So we're going to talk about that and what Job has to say to us Christians who are in the midst of suffering and affliction and distress and how we are to think about it rightly according to the Lord's Word. So... So we want to think about this question, how does suffering attack us? And we want to think about it also with the idea, with the understanding that the devil would tempt the church to think that suffering is a reason to doubt God's existence or God's goodness or something like that. Let's see what the scriptures have to say. I'm glad you've joined us for that. And I'm glad Pastor Brian Flamey is here. Pastor Flamey, how are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty well today. Yep. Well, good. Thanks for checking. Thanks for pausing to reflect uh, on that. You know, most people just say yeah, fine, but sure. I thought you might yeah. say it's really terrible today. But uh, <laughs> you you put together these theses on divine justice. This is really fantastic, and we were rolling through them last time, so we're going to just slow ourselves down and and waltz through some of this stuff, which will be really great. But let's set it up uh, with a reminder about the book of Job and what's going on with with Job. So. Um, so, because we're at the end of Job, once we get to Elihu, you say Elihu, which is the right way. I have no clue. You're you're saying it the right way, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know either. Anyhow, why do you say it your way? I'll say it my, and then we'll cover okay. whichever one's right. We'll have it. That's so, okay. um, so Elihu, he comes at the end, but so so catch us up. Give it, walk us through Job, and hit the highlights of of uh, of the theological questions that are going to matter by the time we get to the end. Okay, so a long time ago, during the time of the patriarchs, there was a very godly and wealthy man named Job. Uh, And what had happened was that the devil, Satan, uh, came before the Lord with the rest of the angels. And the Lord asks Satan, where have you been? Satan says, I've been here, there, and everywhere. 
And the Lord asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan begins his work of accusation in saying, look, the only reason why he's so godly and good and righteous is because you set him up with all his wealth and his children. So the Lord says, okay, go take away his wealth and his family and his children. And the, the devil goes and he does that. Satan returns. The Lord asks him the same question, where have you been? The devil says, here, there, and everywhere. The Lord says, have you considered Job? The devil says, look, he still has reason not to curse you because you won't let me touch his body. As soon as you let me touch his body, I I guarantee he's going to curse you. So the Lord says, go, afflict his body. And the devil does. And that's where we see Job in this terrible, dejected state, covered in sores from head to toe. Uh, He's become so repulsive to his own wife that she says, just curse God, get it done with already, and die. And uh, that's where we find Job and then his three friends, his three, well, not so great friends. (laughs) Uh, Their names are Eliphaz, Biliad, and Zophar. They come to Job and try to console him. The first thing that they do is they sit together in silence for seven days and seven nights. Now, the patriarchs were long-lived, and so sitting around for seven days wasn't as big a deal to them as it might be to us, right? But nevertheless, after that time was done, Job's three friends try to explain to Job and to try to comfort him with how they have sorted out the evil that befell him. Now, realize that Job doesn't have any knowledge of the conversation between Satan and the Lord. That Job doesn't understand that the Lord was, was uh, uh, driven by Satan, or how do you say this, that the accusation that Satan brought against Job, uh, it, it compelled the Lord, not compelled, that's not the right word either. Well, the Lord, because of that, uh, had afflicted Job in this way. So he doesn't know the background at all. All he has is his suffering and these terrible calamities that fell upon him. Despite the fact that he was righteous, he prayed that he had faith. Uh, so his friends uh, come up with explanations like this. Eliphaz says, hey, look, if people do good things, uh, good things happen to them. If people do bad things, bad things happen to them. So Job, somehow, this must be karma, <laughs> right? That, that you're getting what, you're deserve, what you deserve, even though, to, by all appearances, we, we just guessed you were a good guy. But maybe not. Maybe this is what you, what you need to get. Biliad uh, says that, Job, if you are a good person, God will restore you. Things will get better. So from this point forward, just start over, start striving towards godliness again, and God will lift you back up. And then Zophar says, well, you know what? You're a terrible person. I'm pretty sure of that because this evil proves it. Therefore, you probably deserve way worse because of your sin. And, uh, and you should be happy that God has let you off the hook. So you're not really righteous, not at all. So stop trying to say that you are. Well, all three of these arguments, all three of these arguments are not doing Job any good. And Job basically tells them uh, uh, four times, you don't know what you're talking about. You're you're coming up with explanations for what we see here in my dejected and suffering state. But the fact of the matter is you're speaking from ignorance. Your words are empty and they bring no comfort to me. And because Job wouldn't receive his friends' explanations, their various theodicies for his own comfort, his friends become indignant. They all pronounce judgment on Job, say, well, you're the fool. 
you're unrighteous because you wouldn't take our comfort. Well, after this comes to a head and, and Job asserts his own righteousness over and against his friends, and then, and then even over and against God himself, that's when this young man named Elihu, Elihu, however you want to say it, uh, finally clears his throat and he speaks up and he says, Job, you're a fool <laughs> because you tried to justify yourself before God. It's one thing if you try to assert your righteousness over and against the arguments of your friends because then you would be right. But as soon as you take that same righteousness and then you start raging at God about your righteousness that you presume to hold up before his throne, then it all breaks down and you don't know what you're talking about. And then Elihu, he doesn't have anything nicer to say to his friends. He's he, he, says to, uh, he says to them, you're all fools because you're speaking from ignorance. You're trying to explain something, and this is the key thing, that cannot be explained by earthly means. Hmm. And this is mm-hmm. probably the, one of the key insights of Job, is that whenever evil and suffering happen, yes, it is a problem. Yes, evil and suffering are real. But if the only resources we have at our disposal are those resources of logic, and reason, and rationality, and even moral judgment upon this earth, then we're never going to come up with a satisfactory explanation. And in fact, we're only going to be uttering wind back and forth to each other. We're going to be speaking from ignorance. The key Uh, thing... Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you keep going. Key thing. Yeah, the key thing that Job himself ends up asserting is that we need wisdom. Not the wisdom that... uh, that men speak back and forth to one another, trying to explain a heavenly thing through their earthly experience. No, Job himself says that God has to declare it. And and then Job remembers the the word of the Lord. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So there is wisdom, and part of Job's problem is that his friends, they didn't bring God's word to him to comfort him with. Instead, they brought their speculations and their moral reasonings and their theodicies. And because of that, Job despaired all the more, and their uh, attempts at comfort always fell short and didn't understand the real problem of Job's righteousness and the earthly evil that befell him. Yeah, so this finally, is great. Elihu presumes to do what the, the other three friends didn't. He speaks God's word. And he even says, I, you want wisdom? Let me speak wisdom. And so Elihu becomes what Job actually needs up until this point, which is a preacher, not a philosopher, uh, not, uh, uh, not uh, uh, someone who, who guesses uh, uh, at, at the problem of evil, evil using logic or evidence or something like that. Instead, he says, I could tell you what God says about himself and his own ways and his own reasons. And, th- and that's where Elihu's theses start up. Hmm. This is, uh, have you seen, I saw a couple of things to pick up on this before we kind of move on to the Elihu. Uh, have you seen Pastor Melius, our, our mutual friend Pastor Melius's extremely abridged and super colloquialized summary of the book of Job? Uh, yes, did I disagree with him? No, no, it's really great. I, I was just, I just want to know, you know, and I'm going to link this. If so, if people want to, um, if people want to find their theses uh, that you have on Elihu or Elihu, you can go to the wolfmuller.co/elihu. But if you go to wolfmuller.co/job summary, you can find that there. Just go to the website and search for Job, and it'll come up. And and so it, it, he summarizes the chapters like this. So like chapter ten. 
is Job to God. Do you seriously judge like my buddies here according to my sin? Because it sure seems that way. And then here's chapter 11, Melius' summary. Zophar says, I know what you're saying, Job. God forgives you, granted. But he obviously doesn't forgive 100%. You have to do your part also. Then life will be good again. And then chapter 12, Job's response to Zophar. You're so smart. You really cool my faith in God's mercy. Actually, this suffering is not my responsibility. It's God. And it, go, it goes forth. It's really kind of, it's really, really helpful to get the flow of the argument that's happening here. Uh, so that's really good. Now, a couple of other things that I want to pick up on before we get too far. Uh, number one, I like how you set this up. And I, I maybe just want to underline this, that what we see in Job is the, is two arguments happening, two two uh, really and, and and to think of it like a, a an official argument like before a court because there's the first argument of the heavenly court, which is Job, which is God and the devil, arguing about Job, and the Lord is arguing for Job, and the devil is arguing against him, and in fact the Lord in that court is declaring Job to be righteous and holy. And the devil is saying, no, no, that's just an excuse. It's just a guise and so forth. And then you go down to earth and you see another argument, a theological argument that's happening between uh, between Job and his three friends. And And what's so important is to know that they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about Job's righteousness. But but the contrast has to be held before us here because because in heaven God is arguing for Job's righteousness and then down on earth Job's friends are arguing against Job's righteousness, right? Against They're arguing for God's righteousness against Job's righteousness. And I think, and I want to know what you think about this. I think we've talked about it too. I think that one of the things that's happening, one of the big tests for Job is which argument is he going to listen to, the heavenly argument or the earthly argument, the argument from heaven, which is revealed in the sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins in the sacrifice, or the argument of the the theological argument that's the logic of his own suffering, so that the these two uh, conversations are set against each other. Yeah, that's really good. I'm glad that you explained it in that way. I think I was trying to explain it in that way, but I didn't really quite get there. Uh, so the what's interesting is that Job contends with his friends on the basis of the earthly argument showing them the insufficiency of their attempts at explaining God's actions, right, in, in, uh, towards Job because of his sins. And Job says, no, it's not right because of my righteousness. But there is something different about chapter 19. And uh, maybe you understand this better than me, I think. Uh, but there in chapter 19, the argument, again, of the absurdity of God's actions towards Job breaks down, and it's almost as if Job remembers something. And he remembers that he has a Redeemer who advocates for him in heaven. And, uh, and, and he knows that his Redeemer, the one who has redeemed him from sin and death and uh, the absolute destruction of God's wrath, uh, will be there at the last. And Job, even though earlier in the book, uh, he talks about the all-consuming nature of death, there he confesses a Christian hope of life that overcomes death, and that even his life will be redeemed from the grave. And then Job, towards the end of chapter 19, uh, says to his friends, you don't know him, but he is your judge, <laughs> that, that you ought to know him and you ought to fear him. And that's like this brief glimpse 
of Job remembering the heavenly courtroom and the heavenly argument, which is being framed uh, uh, very differently than, uh, uh, than the argument that he's having with his free, three friends, because there the argument depends upon the Redeemer, the mediator between God and man, who we know to be Christ, the seed of the woman who crushes the devil's head. He puts himself between God's anger and us, and he suffers God's anger so that we would be holy and righteous before God in his, in his throne room, right? There's this weird thing that, that we think that there's comfort in the, in the rationale to the suffering. So we think, ah, oh, if, I, if I knew why I was suffering, if I knew the purpose of the suffering, then I would feel better about it. But this is not true. And, you, and this point that you've made, that in the preaching of the Redeemer... That, that's where, in fact, the true comfort is to be found. I want to pick up on that when we come back from this break. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church and St. Paul Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. I've got Pastor Brian Flammy from Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, and we're talking about the problem of suffering and the wisdom that the Holy Spirit would give us from the book of Job. Stay tuned. We're going to be right back. This week on Issues Etc., we'll conclude our Enduring Faith series talking with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller about Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil. We'll discuss the ordination of a minister with Pastor Peter Bender, and we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday School lesson on Jacob's Dream. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. That's the point of the suffering is that it's an argument. Now, here, here, dear saints, here's the thing that we got to hone in on. I'm, this is cross defense, by the way. Pastor Wolfmuller here, and Pastor Flam is with me. That 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 there's a that there's a an argument that is brought to us in our suffering, and the three friends of Job are there to articulate that false argument. So suffering wants to say that God is mad whenever we suffer. It's either that God is punishing for our sins, that God has forgotten us, that God is mad at us, or something like this, or whatever. Whatever happens, whatever argument is being made in our suffering is that we are not justified. So that the devil wants to take all of the trouble and make it an anti-justification argument. And that's what the theodicy does. Pastor Flammy made this great point last week, and I want him to make it again, that any sort of argument from suffering or of suffering 
becomes a theodicy and it falls short because the Lord's answer is not to give us the rationale to suffering, but rather to give us promises in the midst of it. So so take that idea up, Pastor Flamin. So the argument that the friends are making is against is a the, the theodicy argument, and so that's going to stand against the Lord's work of justification. Yeah, it does stand against the Lord's work of justification because it is a replacement justification. So God justifies himself to us through his Son. That's where we see God's righteousness and peace and love and reconciliation with the sinful world. And that's, more importantly, where we see our uh, uh, justification, that's where we see our reconciliation and righteousness before God's thrones, through the blood of Jesus given us in the absolution, baptism, and we eat and drink uh, the sacrament. And that, and that gives us peace of conscience to know that we are reconciled together with God. Now, the problem is, <laughs> outside of Christ, it's nothing but death. And there's no answer whatsoever. And God, and, and the further you get away from Christ at his cross, the more convoluted, confusing, and disturbing things become. And so what Job's friends do is they're trying, to, uh, uh, they're trying an attempt at explaining the heavenly courtroom without ever having been there. Uh, and, and they're trying to explain divine justice through earthly means <laughs> uh, outside of Christ and his incarnation and death and resurrection. And so, so what this teaches us is that apart from the word which preaches Christ, and him crucified, all other ways to justify either God or man is idolatry, necessarily. It's kind of like theodicy necessarily has to fall into these categories of kind of anti-word and anti-Christ, because it is precisely uh, not what God says about his own justice and what he says about what's going on in the heavenly courtroom. Right? We're listening to other witnesses, and, it, and sadly, it turns out uh, that those witnesses are liars. And this is how the devil coerced uh, Adam and Eve into sin, is by selling them a lie about what God thinks and what he wants. And so what, what, what uh, Job's friends are doing is they're kind of, they're sort of putting <laughs> words into the mouth of a lifeless image. Uh, so they have this idea of who God is. And they're trying to put words into this lifeless image's mouth to, to explain to Job why he's suffering like this. Like you said, uh, Job is suffering because he is unrighteous. Uh, Job is, is suffering because, uh, uh, he ha- because from this point forward, God wants him to do better and, and he'll get more or something, right? Hmm. No matter the explanation, it is not word. It is not Christ. And because of that, it's always going to fall short, and it's, it's going to lead Job even to, into even more, uh, par- or how do you say this, into more despair. It seems like Job reaches that point of despair, and that's when he kind of goes too far, and that's when Elihu has to step in. So, so, so you took us to that point before, but now take us all the way through. So, so Job, instead of simply saying, hey, I'm, I have a Redeemer, uh, you guys don't know what you're talking about, at the end, when you get to like 33, Job starts to assert his own righteousness, and that's where it goes too far. And, and Elihu has to step in and say, no, 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 Job, you are, you've gone too far. So t- take us there. Yeah, that's right. So uh, it's interesting, in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 33, and this concerns the hiddenness of God, which Job's other friends 
uh, take for granted. So Eliphaz and uh, Bildad and Zophar all kind of assume that they have to speak for God, despite the fact they've never been in the heavenly councils. Whereas whereas, uh, Elihu acknowledges that God is silent to them, and he has not given them his word. Uh, uh, and, and then when Job rages against uh, uh, them and against God, saying, this isn't what God is saying, God is silent here, uh, he reminds Job that God speaks, <laughs> at the very beginning of, chapter, uh, of verse 14, that God speaks. It, it, so you can't actually think to yourself that God is, is absolutely uh, incomprehensible and silent. This is the miracle that bridges the gap between our uh, earthly misunderstandings of divine justice and what divine justice actually is. Uh, there would, you know, God's ways are certainly far beyond our own, and God's thoughts are certainly far above our own. Uh, but thanks be to God that he reveals himself to this earth through his word, and so that's what Elihu is trying to draw uh, uh, Job's attention to. And so he becomes the preacher. And the first thing that he, he really wants to assert is that uh, God is not the cause of evil. And so that's going to be a... Uh, I like how you 34. said evil like that. That evil. was pretty good. <laughs> okay, sorry. Sorry to mess you up. So Job chapter 34, <laughs> verse 10. That, this is just a, this is Elihu Elihu's first thing, and it's, and it's that God is not the source of these things. I'm going to read the verse for us and then you yeah. can kind of unfold it for us so therefore listen to me you men of understanding far be it from god to do wickedness and from the almighty to commit iniquity right so this is think about the old logical problem of evil that we asserted last week uh that god is powerful god is all-knowing and he is good and evil exists right so it, it seems like you have to weaken one of those statements uh, for it all to exist. Like, maybe God's not powerful enough to do anything about suffering. Or maybe God doesn't know about all the suffering, so he doesn't do anything about it. Or, it, 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 here's a thought, maybe God doesn't care, right? And so God becomes less of a heavenly father who provides for all our needs, and now he becomes uh, uh, an evil tyrant, right, who, who plays with his creation like a kid with a G.I. Joe with a, you know, a magnifying glass and the sunbeams going straight into his head or something like that. No, Elihu says we have to remember God's goodness. We don't let that go. And so if there is evil in this world, it is not because God wills it or intends it. It, it, it. God does not put his hand to this creation and make evil come about as a result. He doesn't destroy what he creates. In fact, God, we know, does the opposite. He redeems what he creates. Uh, so, uh, uh, so instead of uh, uh, softening any one of those premises, <laughs> Elihu strengthens especially the premise that God is good. Uh, that, uh, and uh, if, if we want to start anywhere in talking about God's justice towards this world, we have to assert his righteousness, his holiness, his goodness, even over and against us, knowing that we aren't good like God is. To say that God is, is completely good at least tacitly acknowledges that there is imperfection in us. Otherwise, there would not be the separation, right? This, this great uh, gulf that exists between the heavenly courtroom and our earthly made-up courtrooms where we try to figure out what's going on in heaven and what's going on in God's mind. That, 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 uh, that separation between the two is, a, is what we call sin. 
Hmm. 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 So, okay. So then Elihu continues. This is verse 11. For he, the Lord, repays men according to his work and makes men to find reward according to his way. You say that's Elihu's second thesis, which is that God deals not capriciously but justly with men and with all creation. So what do you mean by that? Well, uh, there's this thought that perhaps uh, perhaps there's reason upon, or, or, I'm sorry, perhaps there's evil upon this earth uh, because God is in fact a tyrant. This is a, a kind of developing that thought that, uh, that God isn't as good as we might think him to be, or we think that our sense of goodness appears by our standards to be greater than God's. And if that's the case, if we see evil happening all around us in the world, and there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it, then it, it, that at least some people have said, well, it looks like your God is evil. He's a tyrant. Uh, he's capricious. He gives to this person this much uh, suffering. He gives to that person who's a, uh, uh, you know, uh, a terrible human being, maybe a thief or a robber, no suffering at all. Remember, this is part of Job's own argument against his friends. Uh, and so doesn't it appear that God is capricious, that, that it seems to us by our own standards of justice and the conscience that God should give to each according to what he has done. And because there doesn't seem to be any justice upon this earth, then the inference is made that maybe God isn't just uh, himself. Well, uh, again, to double down on God's holiness and his righteousness, Elihu says uh, that, no, in fact, God does deal justly with men and all creation, which, again, in the first, in the first thesis, it softened, uh, the, it softened the acknowledgement of our own goodness, <laughs> but we acknowledge God's goodness over and against us. So also here, it, it, we have to acknowledge a limited capacity of, of reason and understanding and awareness. Like, we can't see all the things that God sees. And so for us to, to, to pronounce, well, God is acting apparently capriciously by giving this person this thing and this person another thing, we're, we're going beyond what we actually know. Uh, we don't know uh, all uh, the entire history of the world leading up to that point uh, for why this person receives one thing and another person receives another. Also, uh, we don't. If, we, if all we're thinking about is this world and not the final day of God's judgment, we're leaving out a huge part of God's uh, own justice and what He speaks about Himself. Uh, that this earth is not the final word on right and wrong. That in fact there is a heavenly reckoning when Christ comes again in glory. Uh, which uh, uh, ties back into, uh, of course, uh, uh, Job's early, or, I'm sorry, uh, 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 to what we were talking about earlier, uh, the heavenly righteousness and the earthly righteousness being reconciled through Christ and uh, his work. So in other words, to say, so it's there's a humility required here. The Lord deals justly, and if it doesn't look to it like us, it's because we barely know anything about the past. We can hardly see anything in the present. We don't know anything about the future, and especially... The, the future after the judgment day, we know nothing about that at all, and our great ignorance must be confessed here when we when it seems to us like things are not working out fairly right no yeah that's that's absolutely right and then and, and then, but then there's a little insertion of mercy this is down now i'm in job chapter thirty four verses fourteen to fifteen where Elihu says, if he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath. All flesh would perish together, and men would return. And men would return to the dust. In other words, you say, if God punished everyone according to justice, all life would end. And this implies that the fact that all flesh has not been destroyed is a testament of God's mercy. What do you mean by this? 
so Elihu uh, doesn't deny whenever it came up with the argument that man is sinful and unjust. And instead, he, he says, look, if God sets his heart to, to justice and to destroy it, uh, he can do it. It would be consistent with his goodness. It would be consistent with his holiness. And yet here we are. And even though Job had everything stripped away from him, yet there he is. Even if he wishes that, that the day that he was conceived had never happened, yet God still has withheld his hands from taking that last step of depriving Job of the gift of his life. And that means that there is mercy. Uh, so when we acknowledge, as Elihu is saying, that God is, absolutely, that God is absolutely good and holy and righteous, and that when we acknowledge that the, the, the converse of that, 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 as, that we are not good, holy, and righteous, otherwise we would already know the ways of God, then the fact that we don't already stand obliterated by God's holiness means that God is preserving us. And he's uh, upholding us. And, and, and in his mercy, he's, uh, he's uh, holding back his hand from destroying us, which is an amazing, uh, which I think it is, a, is an amazing testament. I mean, it's, it's pushing towards the gospel. It's pushing towards the forgiveness of sins. But it's not quite there yet. It ra- rather, it, it shows us that even though God is very mad at, at this world and, and our, our sins, Yet there is a possibility of mercy, and uh, of Christ. Of course, Christ Himself makes makes all that known to us through through the Word. Thesis four is going to come from Job thirty four verse twenty one. God knows all of men's actions and their pleas for mercy. So this would be against the argument that God doesn't hear our prayers, that He's ignorant of them, that is that His ears are closed to them. And then thesis five says, when God does not answer men's cry, it's it's not it's because of men's pride. I want to read this verse, for, uh, chapter thirty-five, verse twelve, which says, "There he cries out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men." So that a lack of answer to prayer is not because of God's inability or lack of hearing, but rather precisely because of men's pride. And this is really flipping the argument on its head. I think this is the key point because. Whenever, whenever we are trying to justify the ways of God, we're assuming that we ourselves do not need to be justified. And Elihu's going to flip the tables and say, look, 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 look. Even the fact that we're having this argument is an indication of our great pride as we approach and stand before the Lord. Thoughts on that? With two minutes. Yeah, that's Ooh. right. So, yeah, two minutes. Well, so two minutes till the break, the- and then we'll come back. So. Okay. Uh... uh- Oh, you want me to talk now? Yeah, yeah. That's what I want, oh, most okay. of all, in the, in the whole oh, world. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so pride is uh, a breaking of the first commandment. It's, it's neither fearing, loving, nor trusting in God above all things. Now, what Job and his friends are doing, in a way, is crying out to God uh, in, in various pleas for God, for, for God to show his righteousness to them. But these come from uh, uh, cries of indignation, of, of seeing the apparent injustice of it all. And so what, what, what Job and his friends are doing, at least Job himself at the end is doing, uh, instead of seeing himself as the one being judged by God, now he presumes himself to be the judge of God. And so, like I said before, when, when Job argues concerning his righteousness before his friends, he's absolutely right. But as soon as he argues against God on the basis of his righteousness, then he presumes himself to stand in the, in the judge's seat, or rather to sit in the judge's seat, 
and for God to be on the defendant's stand, right? And, and, and Job says, you have to prove yourself to me. You have to, to my satisfaction, show me that you are, uh, uh, that you are in fact kind and merciful, good, all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good. Uh, how can evil come against me when I am so righteous? As soon as he speaks to God like that, that is breaking the first commandment. And in breaking the first commandment, he commits all the, all the sin of the world, right? So at the very end of Job, which I want to talk about uh, before we finish up the program today. At the very end of Job, you see Job in, in his deepest humility and contrition, and I think it's because he understands, finally, the first commandment, uh, that he presumed to be the judge, Well, whereas he himself was the one being judged by God. And even when God judges him, he realized that God judges him uh, to be righteous. <laughs> That's the source of his righteousness. That's the source of his his own goodness and standing with God is what God speaks and what God declares through his word. Oh, it's fantastic. Let's take a break, Pastor Flammy. It's Cross the Fence. You guys are listening. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Flammy talking about suffering in Job and how we, how we as Christians, respond to the argument of suffering that the devil wants to make in our midst. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas will host its annual fundraising golf tournament on Friday, October 4th at Heritage Ranch Golf and Country Club. In 2018, they raised over $6,000 for the athletics program along with tuition assistance. For this year, they're hoping to raise funds for their school archery program. If you'd like some more information about Faith Lutheran School and their golf tournament, contact them via their webpage, flsplano.org. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Orazio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Welcome back to CrossFence. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfinger, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church, Jesus Death Lutheran Church, both in Austin, Texas, and I'm with Pastor Brian Flammy from Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, and we're talking about Job and the question and the problem, the argument of suffering, and we're looking at the wisdom of Elihu, Job's friends. We've talked about five distinct theses that Elihu has to say to suffering, and we've gotten to the point of pride. Elihu says, hey, Hey, look, if God isn't answering, it's not his problem, it's your problem. It's not his unrighteousness, it's your unrighteousness. But now, so we've set it up, and now the last two are going to get really to the point, and that is Thesis 6. God deals in mercy with men by his word. That's established in Job 36, verse 10 and 12, for example. He opens their ears to instructions and commands that they turn their, from their iniquity. And then Thesis 7 God's mercy comes through suffering in that it opens men's ears to hear the word of God. This is Job 36, verse 15. Uh, it, he delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. 
so that the Lord, in fact, is using suffering to open our ears to his mercy and his kindness. It's not an argument against the righteousness of God. It's an argument for the justification of sinners. Pastor Flamick, give us some thoughts on these two theses. Yeah, that's right. So earlier, we were talking about men in their pride demanding answers from God. They were breaking the first commandment. Now, God will not deal with men on their terms, right? He, God will not stand in the defendant's place, or, or, rather, or rather not in the way that man envisions that God will. Instead, uh, uh, God, he, 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 uh, put, he wants us to know that he wants to deal with us in no other way except through his word. So what Elihu at the very beginning says, if you need wisdom, Job, let me speak wisdom to you. This is the, the, the key point of wisdom for Job, that you want answers from God, to answer from the sky, to answer your questions that you have, to answer your friend's questions. But instead, you have to remember that where God speaks and how he speaks. And so Elihu directs Job to the Holy Scriptures and to the preaching of the prophets. And he says, if you want to know how God is justified in himself, you have to go to where he speaks. Because outside of, uh, of his word, there, like we said before, there's, it's all going to be darkness and confusion. And God is going to appear more and more like a tyrant. But, uh, but the wonder of it is that when God speaks, instead of revealing himself as a tyrant and reveal himself, uh, he doesn't reveal himself uh, dealing capriciously with creation, he reveals himself as merciful and, and loving and kind. And so that through the word, I come to the realization that when I do suffer, it is not from God's anger at all. And that, God, that I don't hurt in this life because, because God's mad at me. I don't hurt in this life because uh, God wants to punish me for this or that sin. Instead, I suffer in this life because it opens the ear to hear the word. That God closes off every other avenue of false comfort and false gods and, and false justifications and false theodicies so that it's true. And so I see God's own theodicy and how he justifies not only himself, but also me through Christ and his cross. Hmm. Hmm. This reminds me of a couple of things. This Remember the C.S. Lewis quote where it says, God whispers to us in our pleasures and shouts to us in our pain? Have you heard uh, that? No. Thank you for it telling me about that, though. <laughs> it also reminds me of of uh, what Luther says about what it takes to be a theologian. Meditation on the Word of God and prayer and suffering. These three things. And he, he has all these verses from Psalm 119, which talks about how it was good for me to be afflicted, that I might learn your Word, so that the Lord uses our troubles and afflictions to to bless us with ears to hear. Right. And so this is how Jesus himself explains suffering in the New Testament. So if you look at John chapter 9, verses 2 through 3, the disciples ask of the blind man, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? Right? So why the affliction? And Jesus says, no, the affliction is here so that God's power may be revealed. How? Through me and through what I do and through what I say. Right? And then you have the beautiful story of John chapter 9 and the, and the healing of this blind man, where Jesus reveals himself for, sa- for the purpose of saving faith to this blind man, even though all the Pharisees who questioned the blind man who were after Jesus, they were completely spiritually blind. But at the end of the story, the, the blind man who regained his sight 
gain something even greater, which were the ears of faith, to hear the voice of Jesus and to follow him. So also in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, there Jesus talks about apparently uh, uh, grave instances of earthly injustice, like the the blood of of Jews being mixed together with a pagan sacrifice, or why this particular tower fell and destroyed so many people. Jesus says, don't think because of this that their sins deserve God's wrath any more than your sins, but rather these things should teach you all to repent, to acknowledge your sinfulness before God, and to flee to God in his word for mercy. Now, uh, this is, uh, if, I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to say about Job before we move off of it, but I had one last idea about Job, but I wanted to hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, sure. Okay, so one of the ways that Job is poo-pooed by most uh, philosophers and uh, religious theologians who don't understand law and gospel and the justification of the sinner through Christ uh, is that they get to the end of Job and it looks like a cop-out, that God just says, hey, I'm great, you're not, therefore, uh, uh, that's it, game over, no more answers to your questions, and uh, it is a completely unsatisfactory sort of answer for, for most people, so much so that I think that a recent publication that was put out by a uh, an unbeliever guy, but but uh, he was fascinated by the book of Job, just cut off the last section of Job in his own retranslation of the work because he hated it so much that God would say to Job, here I am as the creator of all things, and here you are, O man, presuming yourself to be in a position to judge me. Now what's great is that Elihu's preaching comes to an end in almost seamlessly transitions in chapter 38 of Job into the Lord speaking, almost as if, now it says here in the very first verse there, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, okay? So uh, I, I, th- it's interesting that, that, that you have that there. Uh, when and how, uh, and the how of the whirlwind is, is uh, pr- an interesting question, but yet that we want, I think that uh, uh, Job, uh, the, the, the author of the book, wants us to know the kind of overlap between what Elihu is saying in speaking about God and also what God says for himself. And there you have this great argument of the first commandment. You should fear, love, and trust in, in me above all things. Uh, that the Lord is saying, were you there when I created the world? Were you there when I laid its foundations? Uh, who do you think, oh man, <laughs> that you're in a position to stand over me as a judge and to pronounce my ways righteous or not righteous? And so at the end of this display of awesome power and might and wisdom, uh, Job throws himself in, in, in back down to the ashes and repents. But before that happens, before that happens, uh, uh, this is what he says in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. And this is amazing because he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Those are Job's last words. And what's fascinating about that is that before Job said, I heard you, but now I see you. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of what they saw and the things that they saw concerned Christ. Hmm. And so here's my idea. You could shoot it down if you like. We usually think of God's grand argument of power and might in, in spectacular terms, like of blinding light, of explosions and fireworks and all the rest of it. 
Imagine that same argument coming from the crucified Christ mm. hanging upon the cross. <laughs> uh, think of that same argument, all of those same words coming out of Jesus' mouth as he's suffering for Job's sins. Mm. Mm. Can you imagine? Mm. And so when Job says that he sees God, I don't think we should dismiss that because a sinner cannot see God and live unless we place and fix our eyes on the sacrifice that is sufficient to earn God's kindness for us, which is the sacrifice of God's own son. So Jesus says in John chapter 3, that just as Moses lifted up the, the serpent in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so this is where the sinner has to look to be reconciled to God. This is where the sinner has to look to be made righteous by God. He has to see and, 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 and see Christ upon the cross, and he has to hear Christ's preaching from the cross. Oof. And so this is an amazing image that I have in my mind now of, of Jesus speaking about how he was there at the foundation of the world, laying its, and creating all the creatures and, and giving them their uh, inscrutable ways and, and uh, their, their, their incredible powers, right? Uh, he talks about the Bohemoth and the Leviathan, all these incredible things that Job or any other man could hardly fathom. And yet, as he's speaking of his greatness, uh, he wants to reveal himself to Job, not in greatness as much as in suffering, right? That this is the, this is the amazing thing that even though it is unholy and unrighteous for us to stand in judgment over God, God in kindness and mercy made himself to stand in the, you know, in the place of the defendant. Hmm. And he took on the, the divine charge of guilty in our place. Hmm. Uh, and so it matters that Jesus stood there in front of Pilate and received the judgment of God through Pilate's own voice and says, here is a man that I find no guilt in, and yet... He is going to be your. Uh, uh, he is going to be put to death. <laughs> you know, and so even though Pilate fi finds no sin in him, he's still handed over for the, the the justice that God meets out through his worldly authorities. And so it's it's the very thing that man was demanding to begin with, that God says, "Not your way, but my way," and He does it through His Son, who becomes human flesh, so that He could bear our sin stand in the place of divine judgment and take all of God's wrath away so that when we hurt and suffer in this life, it's not because God is angry, right? Uh, but uh, it's because, because God loves us. And we can see upon the cross and Christ's preaching from the cross where uh, uh, divine and heavenly justice reveals itself to this earth. And, earth. and our cries for divine justice are finally answered in the crucified Christ for our sins. Uh, maybe there's a painter out there, and they'll take this up. So here's Job, and he's got sores all over his face. And standing in front of him is Jesus, lacerated with the whips. And here's Job with the ashes dripping off of his head, and standing in front of him is, is Jesus, crowned with thorns, with the blood dripping off of his forehead. And here's Job in sackcloth and ashes, and before him stands Jesus, uh, stripped naked for crucifixion, saying... Who are you to contend with the Almighty? <laughs> this is it's a stunning picture, Pastor Flammy. It's fantastic. Let me. I'm going to push it one more, one little thing further, and see what you think. Because in the beginning, we we wondered how did Job know the argument of heaven? How did he know what was declared in the heavenly court? And we think, well, it was the it was the sacrifice, where if his children would sin, he would go and offer a sacrifice so that they could be forgiven, so that righteousness is declared. Counsel. And then at the very end, the Lord says, 
to the to the three friends of Job, hey, go to Job. He's my prophet. He'll sacrifice for you. And so now the three friends, which are part of the council of the devil, are brought into the heavenly council, and they also now stand before the Lord as righteous and holy and forgiven by the sacrifice, by the blood of the sacrifice. Like what, 30 seconds maybe to talk about that. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, the problem with Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Biliad, and Zophar, was that they were trying to explain God's justice without seeing the sacrifice that God himself provides for the world, which is what the sacrifices of the Old Testament all point to, to Christ himself. And not just, you know, uh, uh, empty, abject sacrifice, but rather sacrifice that's bound together with the preaching of the coming seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head, who had crushed sin, death, and, and the devil under his foot. So Job, of course, revealed himself in chapter 19 as a preacher of this kind. And when he made sacrifice for his children, it was surely sacrifices bound to the preaching of the Redeemer who stands in the heavenly courtroom. And this, uh, this is now the gift that's given to, to Job's friends when, when he will make sacrifice for them and pointing them also to Christ. We, we have this problem of evil. We say, hey, how can God be good and God be all-powerful and there be evil in the world? It doesn't seem like it fits together. And the Lord says, well, you don't think that fits? Watch this. And he sends his son to suffer in our place and to die on the cross for us, not to justify his acts, but to justify us, to forgive us our sins and to declare us righteous. And that it's through that that suffering, it, not only, it doesn't make sense, but all of a sudden the Lord begins to comfort us in the midst of it. That's what we're after. The comfort in the midst of suffering, knowing that one day we will close our eyes through all the suffering and open them to see the face of Jesus, the one who died for us, who prays for us, who intercedes for us forever. Hey, thanks for listening to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Join me next week. We'll be taking up more curious theological topics with Pastor Flammy. Till then, God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks again for being a podcast listener. God be praised. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you think of someone else who might be comforted by this truth that the Lord doesn't, he doesn't answer the why of suffering, but he comes to us in the midst of it with the suffering of his son, Jesus. What a compelling picture of Jesus in his suffering talking to Job. If that was comforting to you and you know someone it would be comforting to, please consider sharing it with them. Uh, that's how we help each other, serve each other with the Lord's word and his kindness. And we'll talk to you again next week. God's peace be with you.